We're here on the Heritage Radio Network. <laughs> this is the main course. My name is Katie Kiefer, and I'm here with my co-host... Patrick Martins. And we have a great show lined up today. Um, first and foremost, we have Gina De Palma in the studio with us today. And Gina is uh, a pastry chef at Babo. She's at a James Beard Award-winning Outstanding Pastry Chef of the Year for 2009. Um, and has uh, published a wonderful book, um, the name of which is eluding me right now, but I will find it and I'll tell you later. Um, it's called Dolce Italiano, Desserts from the Babo Kitchen. You want to rush right out and get a copy of that. Um, we also have Michael Hurwitz from The Green Market. Michael is going to kick off the first of a regular monthly segment, we hope, um, where we discuss uh, the directions that The Green Market is going in, new features, new uh, new providers. <laughs> Thank you, Patrick. And, um, and just overall health of The Green Market. So that's coming up in the second half hour of the show. Today's show is sponsored by... Edwards. You're listening to the Heritage Radio Network. Today's program was brought to you by Edwards of Surrey, Virginia. www.edwardsvaham.com Be there, be square, man. They make the greatest Suriano um, prosciutto-style ham. And uh, they put their money where their mouth is, you know. They really do. They really do invest in good things. A lot of people say they do, but then if you were to really do like an audit on them, you would find out like only 1% of what they actually buy is is, is real. what they say it is. And yeah. Gina, you know, with Babo, I mean, they put their money where their mouth is. I mean, they really do buy a lot of uh, good stuff. But um, so, <laughs> what's been going on, uh, Katie? Well, we were just uh, mentioning before the show opened uh, the uh, wonderful op-ed piece uh, by Michael Pollan this week um, mm. discussing the intertwining of the healthcare reform with trying to reform big food, mega food, and mega ag. And, um, and sort of the correlation between once the uh, insurance industry actually has to sort of cough up some money to take care of people who have, um, you know, weight-related disease, heart disease, diabetes, and so on, they might start um, spending some of those lobbying dollars on uh, encouraging big food to roll back uh, the um, hyper-processed uh, quality of the foods that they're pushing onto Americans through fast food chains and through uh, prepared foods in the supermarkets. So. I mean, he was saying that's the real problem. He's like, it's not really um inadequate healthcare system. It's just really people eating fast food all the time. I mean, he brought up some interesting things, you know, that we're spending $147 billion to treat obesity and $116 billion to treat diabetes, both of which are, you know, semi-preventable. Uh, diseases in most cases. Most definitely. I mean, if if healthcare reform includes um, preventive care as opposed to what we do now, which is when you're sick, you go to the doctor instead of going to the doctor to, you know, sort of keep a lid on what's happening in your body. Mm-hmm. Um, then we might. There's how much is that? That's what two hundred and seventy million dollars in savings right there. Right. Right. Um, I know he's projecting a one trillion dollar, one point three trillion dollar cost over ten years. Right. But uh, if we save two hundred and seventy five million per year, mm-hmm. we would reach that trillion dollar savings by the end of ten years, wouldn't we? Or am yeah, I, absolutely. Is my math wrong here? No, I don't know. Maybe it's trillion, not million. No, I don't know. But it's no. like no. I think you're, what you're saying is right. And I mean, it's um, it's obviously it needs to happen. And you know, all these things. You know, these people who are so avidly against this. So, you know, just 
belligerent, yelling at things. The, the same thing happened with the women's suffrage movement. Same thing happened with the environmental movement. Same thing happened with civil rights. You know, you don't want to be on the wrong side of history. And being yelling at some town hall meeting, like, is, an, I think, an embarrassment to you and your family. Like, the tide has turned. Healthcare is needed. And, like, we're way behind. I mean, one of the things that uh, Michael Pollan wrote in his op-ed on September 10th is that United States... The United States spends twice as much per person as most European countries on health care. I mean, that's already, you know, that, that's a big problem. Like, that stat alone should, should wake so people up. So if we spent that much money and we had a, you know, quote-unquote national health plan, then every man, woman, and child in this country would be well covered, and we would have even fewer health problems, mm-hmm. theoretically, than they do mm-hmm. in European countries or in Canada, where... I've experienced the healthcare system. It actually does work pretty well. Yeah. And I don't really know what people are so afraid of. And anyway, so many people, you know, every time I'm like, uh, come to an idea with a certain opinion, then I'm like, wait a second, I don't know the issue very well. Like ignorance is not a good launching pad. And, you know, if you live out in the suburbs of Montana and don't experience people who don't have health care, you're not really in a position to, to talk much about it, you know, and here in New York City, it's a kind of like a it was called like the subway, the great equalizer. Yeah. You're forced to interact with these people. You see these things and, you know, you become a little bit, you know, your opinion becomes maybe a little bit more sophisticated or nuanced or understanding. Well, all you have to do is visit an emergency room in a New York City hospital and you know right there why. You're like, this country we needs We really it. need health care, yeah. In downtown absolutely. Detroit, in downtown Daytona, Cleveland, The other thing Cleveland, that, that knocked me out was um, was the whole concept about these death panels. I know we'll get off of this in a second, but the, the idea that uh, end-of-life counseling, mm-hmm. which, by the way, is mandated by the state um, in almost every state. When you go into the hospital, I'm sure you can confirm this, you must sign a do not resuscitate order if that's what your wishes mm. are. You must have a health care proxy. You must have a living will. That is what end-of-life counseling is. It's about how to manage your needs and desires should mm. you become incapacitated and identifying a person to take care of those needs and desires should you not be able to uh, speak up for yourself. And that's, that's what end-of-life counseling means. And it's all already happening and yet somehow the uh, you know the media was able to spin this into mm-hmm. something called a death panel and i i was just absolutely blown away by that anyone hmm. who has cared for an elderly person knows all about how necessary this is i mean this is an in- absolutely indefensible twisting of the truth that mm-hmm. um i think has has been one of the major factors in slowing down people's acceptance of the idea of changing the system at all mm-hmm. absolutely well, um, we will uh, soon go into the show, but one last thing about that op-ed I wanted to mention, and this will have this type of effect, I think. But it is a soda tax. Yeah, I'm all for the soda That's tax. That's big. I mean, I have to say, there was nothing that gave me more pleasure in life, like as a seven-year-old, than tasting like a Sunkiss soda or a Coke. But yeah. all good things, you know, cigarettes, drugs, they should all be taxed. Absolutely. You know, because they are kind of pleasure things. They're not like necessity of life, and they have bad side effects. So. Yeah, well, I think when people have substituted soda in the family home instead, or even fruit juice, which is frankly another one of my pet peeves, um, you have a problem. Mm-hmm. It's milk or water. Absolutely. Well, we have uh, Gina DePama, uh, Michael Hurwitz, and then we have Jeff Lohan talking about Flushing Farm. And I was trying to think of a common theme between all three of them. And one of them is they all have vowels in their names. 
Um, but other than that, and they I all think, help us get better food. Yes, exactly. That's a better <laughs> one. So uh, let's take a uh, 15 second break and we'll come back with Gina De Palma and talk about the tetoir fine art of pastry. Yeah. This is the main course. I'm Patrick Martins. I'm Katie Kiefer, and we are on the Heritage Radio Network. And we are sponsored today by Sam Edwards. All right, we're going to do a drop. Guys in the back, are you ready? We're going to do an Edwards drop. All right? You're listening to the Heritage Radio Network. Today's program was brought to you by Edwards of Surrey, Virginia. www.edwardsvaham.com well, we are very excited to have Gina De Palma in the studio today. It is quite an honor. I mean, it James is. Beard Award winner, outstanding uh, pastry chef of the year, Babo um, Babo pastry chef. I, I think didn't you write the chapter, the whole chapter? I did. Yeah, and, oh. and the the Babo cookbook. Yeah, I, I wrote the dessert. Chapter. And you have your own uh, cookbook as I well. I do. It's Dolce. actually yeah. It's actually almost two years out. Uh, Dolce Italiano. See. Si. Very nice. See, si, come nice on all. <laughs> so um, tell us a little bit about, you know, breaking into this industry. You know, take us back to maybe your history and, and, and some of like, how does someone break into the pastry industry? It seems like a very beaker-ridden, high-tech kind of world. Well, well... It can be. I don't think it should be defined as that. Um, it's so it's so different. It's such an odd question at this point because the business has changed so much since I broke into it. Now you've been a pastry um, chef for how long? Because you look like a pretty young lady. Uh, to me. Uh, <laughs> no, I've been in pastry since nineteen ninety four. So it's so been a while. Fifteen years. Okay. Yeah, fifteen yeah. years. Um, and you got standard training at like FCI or no? I actually Institute. did not get any pastry Self-taught. training. I got no. I got. I was a culinary grad. I I kind of did things. I went to culinary school before it was cool, mm-hmm. and I did it basically. Even though I had already been working in the industry for a few years, and I did it because I was nervous. Uh, I wanted to kind of take it to another level, and I thought, well, I, I'm not. I don't have any formal training, um, even though I'd been cooking all my life. And so I went, and it was, you know, it really wasn't that big of a, a, a thing to do. Um, my family, my mom was a little upset. She, you know, um, I was going to go to law school, and I took a sharp turn from that. And she, you know, was like, oh, my God, what are you doing? You're going to ruin you gonna your life. How are you going to make a living? Yes. 
<laughs> is that the angry mob? Mm, <laughs> yeah, that's yes. pretty much it. Um, and and you know, to be honest with you, I was I was apprehensive myself. Um, there isn't the people entering the business today. Just I, I'm sorry, but they just have it a lot easier. There's a huge structure. Nobody's going to look at you and say, "What do you want to cook?" You right. know, like they did to me. Um, it was kind of an alternative thing to do, and now it's you know everybody wants to do it. Yes, and 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 now that restaurants are struggling, it's like uh-oh. I mean, yeah. It's, <clears throat> but you know, I, I you know there were like ten restaurants you wanted to work at, right? You know, and and uh, back in the day, back in the day, you know, and now there's just it's incredible. Every little storefront, and mm-hmm. even in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're like, oh my god, there's I know. a bakery. I know, Patrick, that place that we went to to get coffee, they had beautiful looking little pastries. And there's yeah. there's talent everywhere right. where there, you know, there clearly wasn't before. And uh, um, that nice woman from Diner, um, Carolyn Fidenza, mm-hmm. I think she's opened mm-hmm, a little bakery mm-hmm, right next mm-hmm. to Fet Sow on Metropolitan Avenue. I mean, well, oh, Carolyn, she manages uh, Marlowe and Daughters. She used to. <gasps> oh, I see. Now she has her own little bakery. Yeah, I think bakeries are bakeries, cupcakes is a little, a little different. Adventure. Yeah, that's so a different thing what from what it? you do. Obviously, what is pastry? Define it for us. Well, um, it's in a restaurant sense. It's it's dessert. It's the dessert course. I think pastry in a pastry shop is a little bit of a different thing. In in a in a restaurant, you're actually composing dishes, mm-hmm. and also it's not you're not defined only by flour, water, butter, and eggs. In other words, when you're the dessert cook for a restaurant like Babo, you're not just making pastry. You're making mousse and souffle yeah, ex- and exactly. custard, and is it so always it's really sweet? a bigger range. Well, what I do isn't what's under my domain at Babo isn't always sweet. Um, I do. Uh, we have a tasting menu, and uh, I do. I try to stick a lot of savory elements into that because okay. I'm actually responsible for three courses, and I always try to make one of them have a. A, you know, a large amount of savory uh, mm-hmm. quality to it. Um, I used to uh, run the cheese program there. Um, so I, I kind wow. of like used to buy all the cheeses. and Give us an fun. example of a savory pastry. Well, like right now I have a uh, fritter or a fritelle. Fritelle is plural. Um, uh, made with dancing you cacciotta. Okay. And the fritter itself is not sweet. Uh, but I serve it with honey. Uh huh. Um, Which is that a nice accompaniment of, yeah, for exactly. sheep's milk makes cheeses. It kind of so a, there is always know, a sweet element. There's a sweet element. Yeah, always, always a sweet element. What about this Kim Severson piece I saw on the Times about baked brie tarts or something like that? Is that a trend or, or something like that? You know what? I missed that. <laughs> I missed that trend. I, I missed um, that too. Or I don't know if it was a trend or if she was for it or against it, but as she was like, she wrote baked brie. Uh. Well, you don't remember when baking a brie in a bread crust. Remember that, that Gina? 70s that was like because that was when I started thing, out yeah. in the food business and I was catering, and people were always asking for that. You would get a big brioche loaf brie or something, and yes, brie en crude, or you'd get the big brioche loaf and you'd hollow it out and you'd stick the brie in it, and then you'd put it back in the mm. oven, and the brie mm-hmm. would be all gummy. Or then, and then there was a whole thing of like packing the brie with dried fruits and nuts remember that yep. and baking that i mean it yep. was really discouraging and brie to my mind was just and it was always this commercial mass-produced brie it wasn't like exactly. you were getting brie de mot or something it's, fabulous yep. like that you were getting this really chalky boring um flavorless cheese with sort of a strange smelling rind which we won't describe right now but um you know it just was not good but boy oh boy did that just ring everyone's chimes. I mean, mm-hmm. Glorious Foods made a fortune. 
fortune on that, yeah. right? Yeah, well, yeah. But what they were doing was a trend that still continues today, is uh, taking something that's very uh, traditional mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, turning people onto it and suddenly it's new. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and it's not necessarily actually something that's new. It's just something that's different. So, what do you see happening as trends? Because one of the things I wanted to bring up with you as a trend in your in the in the sort of pastry industry or the dessert industry is the pairing of savory and salt with sweet. Like that seemed to become well, like very a, medieval. Or putting or putting thyme yeah. or basil in your sorbet or well, you know, bacon. As as yeah. Patrick says, well, bacon ice cream. I a long time. It took great. a long time for sweet foods to be segregated from savory foods hmm. that's something that happened in the late i mean actually in the in the during the renaissance mm-hmm. after the renaissance is when that actually uh-huh. started century, yeah exactly 16th, yeah. In, in the in medieval times in the renaissance people would eat you know you'd eat a meal and there would be a sweet thing and a savory thing even within together. the same dish even like within the same dish would go into meat would meats, get a yeah. lot of sugar mm-hmm. on it yeah. right and cinnamon um, yeah, or whatever ex- spices they had the brought original, in the original original blanc mange was you know basi- basically poultry almonds and sugar mm-hmm. right um so uh, okay now i just totally went what off what is blanc mange now <laughs> Well, blanc mange now would be like a sweet. Uh, uh, is it a custard? Considered, yeah, like a custard, uh-huh. something like that. Budino. I used to see that in books all the time as yeah. a child. Blanc mange was a very popular, yeah. I guess, nineteenth-century yeah. dessert. Yeah, yeah that's sort of when, like tapioca or for, something. For the taggers out there, our producer Jack Insley, that's B L A N C mange, M A N G E. In Italian, <laughs> it would be bianco mangiare. See. And we're engineered by Nat Wiener, by the way. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But what we were talking about was the the trend Modern of, of uh, savory and sweet being paired see, together, I, you know, and how see, that's new, but it's really very old. That's baffling to me that that's a trend because um, mm. I used to, you know, 1998, I made a cherry tomato sorbet and I put some sea salt on it. And I served it, and, and that was nobody a dessert, gave or was it a it second a... thought. I was, it was a little, actually, a little pre-dessert, right. a little like in one of my little separator. tasting courses. I've always done savory and sweet. I've always done sweet and salty. Um, I think it's, I think that's probably why you won the outstanding pastry well, chef. <laughs> no, you know, I mean, I, I clearly think, you got it going on. I think it's because of the the incredible food mania that we have going on, and the incredible attention that cooking and chefs get these days. Um, you know, salted caramel. You know, yeah. I mean. I said recently... And or I curried hope, chocolate. Yeah, I hope we don't get any angry emails or anything, but, you know, I'm a little over the salted caramel as, oh my God, it's the greatest thing ever. It's not new to me. <laughs> That's not new to me. Snickers, you know, right, has been right. doing this yeah. for years. Um, but as far as trends go, gosh, I, I just hate the word. I hate trends because it's really um it's just a recycling usually of an old i mean are new things happening still like is well what are you doing right now invention what are are you you excited about well what i visiting because well what i do is i the more i feel that trends are imposed upon me the more i want to just go basic Uh uh-huh uh-huh you know um just strip things down to uh, minimalistic, uh, I don't want to say minimalistic, but just simple preparations, clean flavors, and, and you know, protecting kind of the integrity of the products that I work with. Mm-hmm. So what's your favorite dessert on your menu right now at Babo? Right now, 
Um, well, I love those fritters that we're doing, and um, I'm doing a, a bud- you mentioned budino, which mm-hmm. is kind of like a pudding. Um, I do a budino, in, in my interpretation, it's more like a little cake, uh-huh. uh, like a pudding, like a steamed pudding cake with fresh figs and honey. Mm. And I serve Ooh, it with a buttermilk good. and blueberry gelato. Ooh. Very interesting. Well, yeah, I wanted it's to. It's pretty banging, I gotta say. <laughs> <laughs> Good for you, girl. What uh, skills are needed to produce these things? Like, if someone's like, "Would I be a good pastry person?" Like, what skill sets are needed within a person to, you know, obviously you can't generalize, but like, how do you think? Uh, what do you think a person needs to have? I think in the kitchen, and especially the pastry kitchen, you should have an even temperament and by that i mean you should not be given to easily to panic <laughs> um uh or easily distracted uh, i think you need to definitely be focused i also but I, I don't like people who are too intense you know i have a saying at the babo kitchen i don't know if everybody agrees with me but whatever things are getting a little too intense i say you know yo we, we just we just make dinner yeah, right. You know, Let's that's come back to the do. mothership. You know, we're not inventing and, a cure for cancer here. And I don't even make dinner. I make the thing that comes after dinner. Yep. I make that afterthought. Right. You know, so so kind of keeping calm, being focused. It's true. People have uh, three meals a day their whole lives. Mm-hmm. It's not like you know World War Two is is being decided at that one course. Yeah, exactly. Even though, you know, it's important to... I've always had that feeling of like, you know, ever since... Because I've been watching this whole thing. I mean, I was in the food business a long time myself. And then I began publicizing uh, food writers uh, in 2000. And my first client was Anthony Bourdain. And I worked with this woman named Rosemary Morris. And he had come to her. And anyway, together, you know, we made that whole phenomenon. Uh, at least assisted that phenomenon in happening. And then after that, it suddenly it was like, <gasps> Starsha! and everything was like and it was like so important that you you know ate at such and such a restaurant or 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 did such and such a type of dish and i I kept saying to myself this is just food people yeah this is not going to help your life it's not going to change you it's not going to make you a better person to Mm -hmm. eat at this restaurant or that well it's funny that you mention that because i you know i as i've gotten older and everybody in the kitchen's gotten younger. Uh huh. Um, I try very hard to identify what makes the young people that often come to work for me tick. Because uh, I'm trying to figure out, because I grew up, food was not a craze or a mania. Right. Like it was taken for granted, it was important. Mm-hmm. And it was to balance it the right way in everything. It was more mind. like the quotidian fabric that you yeah. didn't. Uh, it, it was not an epiphany every time. It, it wasn't. It was. It was basic, but it was imp- it was important, um, and and it was it was almost second nature and kind of taken for granted that the ingredients would be right. Yeah, that it would be seasonal, and, and then that it would be thoughtful, it, thoughtful, but not thought out. Yeah, and and the only thing that I can come up with is. One. You know, maybe there's just some sort of hole that they're trying to fill with with food, mm-hmm. and and that's how it becomes so overwrought sometimes yeah. these days. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, I, I, that's um, what I find. I find it very overwrought. And when you read menus, and I this, this I think people are sort of reeling it back to uh, what you were talking about, stripped down a little more bare bones. But there was a time in the in the late '90s and early 2000s where you would a menu would be pages long with with laundry lists of ingredients you know earl grey tea and and verjuice and this and that and it would be and you would taste none of these things wah, wah, in yeah. the actual pre- preparation and yet it was somehow to delight you that you were going to you know have this thing with all these cool things in it 
It's like, I don't want all those cool things in it. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. I don't care. This is Joe Bastianich, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Oh, so, um, I love you, Joe. Uh, who doesn't love Joe? What a <laughs> nice guy, considering how important he is and how much he has going on. He always maintains, uh, talking about not getting, you know, hot headed. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he he's very... the best. Um, well, we'll get into that in a second. I want to ask you about what it's like working at Babo and what it was like winning a James Beard Award. But just to kind of get into this grammar, what are some of the tools that you use? Like people say, oh, I want to be a pastry chef at home, but maybe they don't know what it really takes okay. in terms of tools. Like give us uh, two or three of, of the most common or the most uh, unusual tools. That- I think you need, I think everybody needs a stand mixer of yes, some sort. I'd and KitchenAid is, is my favorite. It's not the only one out there. KitchenAid. Vi- KitchenAid. Kitchen Viking Aid. makes a nice stand mixer Hobart now. Hobart makes Cuisinart a- makes a nice yeah. stand mixer. Cuisinart. But I think if you really want to do anything serious, and I don't mean serious. I, I, I mean, like, if you really want to kind of have have the freedom to, to kind of go in lots of different directions, it's a great investment because... You can get all sorts of attachments that help you do other tasks. Including savory foods. You exactly. You get a thing that makes pasta. The pasta roller the, on the KitchenAid is and the fabulous. the meat grinder. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so I think that's a must. I think a scale. Uh, my friend uh, Michael Ruhlman, not my friend, but someone I admire tremendously. I wish he was my best friend. Um, he just, uh, he just uh, released a really great book yeah. called Ratio. Yeah. And one of the things that he's advocating is the use of a scale. You know, and right. if only, and it's, it's, I can talk more about that on another show, but. What about just you, uh, pouring a little bit in and adding a little more? If it needs it, that doesn't so work with pastry. It needs to be totally exact. It's not as rigid as you think. I think when you're talking about a baked item, it's, it's definitely a little bit, you know, more regimented, but I do a lot of cooking kind of offhand, you know, it's, mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's not but as. That's because you know instinctively already yeah. what makes things work so you you've already mastered the grammar which is yeah. what patrick is trying to get at beginners um, need uh, beginners need the grammar textbook, yeah. and they need the vocabulary mm-hmm. um, the vocabulary being the you know the blueberries or the buttermilk or the you know but you know that a sorbet or a gelato is as michael ruhlman said a ratio of one ingredient to another ingredient mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, what about a high-tech tool that's just like i mean uh, we had wiley on and he was talking about one of those things that go really fast to pull the juice out of a nut a, it was like a velocity oh god velociraptor i don't know something like that <laughs> i don't know i am so not the chick to talk about that because that is such a boy thing though don't i make you think biscuits the and thing? pie dough with my fingers yeah. <laughs> so i don't even like to use a food processor for that yeah well we were talking about joe earlier what is it like working for babo and within that i mean talk about a crown jewel of that um restaurant empire i mean it still seems the most unchanged like perfect of the restaurants yeah well you know it's that's it's very italian in that sense in that you know uh dishes kind of become part of the lexicon and you can't we, we, we try to to do them faithfully mm-hmm. um and and uh once you become uh, attained a level of popularity that Babo has. You know, we have a lot of repeat customers that have dishes that they just love. Right. So, so then you have a hard time changing up yeah, your menu. Yeah. Well, it's not so much that we want to. We we want to kind of stay true to that. We want to honor that, and we want to put them out just as you know well now as the first day we ever put them of out. Of course. Um, Babo is an incredibly small kitchen. For the numbers that we do, um, it is it is still to me amazing that we get it done every day. 
God, consistency is so hard. That's the hardest thing the to achieve in the restaurant. generation doesn't know that. You know, I've, I've, I've been lucky enough to see the, just even though I was very young, the kind of Alice Waterses of the world and the Carlo Petrinis, but also the Mama Fucos and the Robertas. And, you know, one of the disconnects I see the most is the repeated day in and day out success and high production. That, you know, 10, 20 years of that, that's a historic achievement. You know, it's not just a one-off or a great month or it's a great season. It's the goal season. of all cooking. This is this is what I try to say to my youngins. If you are bored with coming in every day and doing the same thing perfectly, you need to not do this for a living because that's what cooking is. That's mm-hmm. right. Especially professionally. Absolutely. Day in and day out. It's very hard. Yeah, you could mess around at home all you want. But See, uh, now I grew up with the um, playing video games. or So I was still part of the video game, but there was no pause button or do over or pick up the game <laughs> where you left off. Like If you were good, you were like, I'm going to spend the next five hours playing this game. You know, it's a, it, it is a thing that um, isn't rewarded as much or... People well, don't encounter it I don't think much. people realize how important it is until you until you get a little bit older, a little bit more mature. Well, that's how you put integrity into a dish. That's right. By well, doing it properly and every doing it time. perfectly every, every time. time. Doing it the that's best you can. That's what gives it integrity. It's not yeah. about inventing, coming up with the latest right. wacky flavor combination. It's about skills. Yeah. Tell skills. us about winning the uh, James Beard Award. Uh, who did someone introduce you, or who were you up against, or was this your first wow. nomination? <laughs> It was my seventh nomination. Ooh. Yeah. So And it, you're up against some serious talent. I mean, there are some really, year, really yeah. talented cooks out there, pastry cooks. I mean But that's you know what? That's part of the um that's part of the honor. You know? uh, no question about it. To be um, in a field of peers that you admire and respect, I mean, just to be nominated, exactly. I would think would be enough of a charge in a way. Exactly. And um you know, it's the Beard Awards it's an incredible honor. Your peers vote on it. In a large part, it's it is like a popularity contest at some point, you know, because um, you know, in some ways, like I don't necessarily feel like this year was my the year of my finest work. Which year was that? Oh, I don't know. Like your um, first or second or third year? I think like maybe around my fourth or fifth nomination, I uh-huh. really kind of thought, like, yeah, like I think I've made a contribution, and it should, you know, I would love to have it recognized, right? But. It doesn't matter at this point. I won it. I'm so happy that I won it. It, it. it just was such a great little, like, Well, let's say Oscars of uh, food. Now, let me ask, does Ababo limit your recipe possibilities because it has to be of a certain region or of a certain type? No. Or do you have a lot of no. freedom to jump around as no. long as it's good? I don't feel limited because I don't have a desire to do anything that requires, you know, a lot of different equipment or whatever. Mm. I think that's how I'm challenged. I have like 17 inches of space. And we got it, you know. And we a stand gotta get mixer. It, you know what I mean? And a stand mixer, and, yeah, and a low boy. And we got to get it done. What's and a low boy? A, a low, like an under-the-counter refrigerator oh. in a professional kitchen. That's what that's called. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Gina, unfortunately, we have to wrap it up with you, and we have to go to a break. But, but I hope uh, we you'll want come you back. to sit in. I mean, and sit, please stay sit here. here. And if you have any questions for our green monthly green market segment, yeah. we'd love for you to chime right okay. in, girl. Consider no yourself problem. part of the. Thank you uh, so much for having me. Oh, it's been great, Gina De Palma, the pastry cook at Babo. She'll be, She'll back, be back on Heritage Radio yeah. for sure. And we're going to go take a short break, and in will come Michael Hurwitz and his colleague Liz, whose last Liz. name we still don't no, know. No, I think it's just Liz. It's just Liz. Okay. Yeah. Oh, so it's just Liz. Yeah.
Corolla. If it's Sunday, it's the main course. I'm Patrick Martin. And I'm Katie Kiefer. This is the Heritage Radio Network. Today's show is sponsored by Sam Edwards. We have a drop for that. Guys, we're Let's about to. It. Is everyone sitting down in the studio? We are about <laughs> to do a drop. You're listening to the Heritage Radio Network. Today's program was brought to you by Edwards of Surrey, Virginia. www.edwardsvaham.com. I do kind of resent Meet the Press for taking that if it's Sunday, it's Meet the Press. Granted, they've been around since like the 40s or 50s or whatever, but I mean, that's really should have been ours all along. Well, you know, they didn't know we were coming, so. We should have gotten one of those advanced patents. Like, we weren't weren't born born. yet. (laughs) Well, we've had, uh, we have had so far a fantastic show with Gina DePalma. Yeah, very good shows. I don't know much uh, about pastry, but it was very good. Gina's going to come back and tell us more, but right now we're in the studio. She might do her own show one day. Oh, Yeah. Now we're in the studio with Michael Hurwitz from the Green Market and his colleague uh, Liz Carolla, who's running she has some last special name? events. She does, <laughs> as it, it turns out. I found out what it was. Yeah. Oh. So Liz Carolla, Michael Hurwitz, welcome. This is the first of what we hope will be a regular uh, update on Green Market activities around the city and the five boroughs. So um, thank you so much for coming in and. I'm looking forward to seeing you again and again. Well, tell us, what will this monthly segment be for our listeners out there? I mean, you could probably do your own daily show if you needed to. There's so much going on. But what can our listeners look forward to hearing uh, on a monthly summary? Well, I think that uh, we'll be talking about what's happening at Green Market, programming, what's happening with youth education, what's happening with EBT, What's happening? Programming at the market. What's new to the market? What is EBT? In. Sorry, EBT is foods our food food stamp program. Mm-hmm. We have okay. one of the the largest food stamp uh, at farmers market programs in the country. Cool. Uh, our mission is to make sure that New Yorkers have access a, a steady stream of access to locally produced uh, agriculture products, and that is all New Yorkers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and also, what's happening in agriculture? What's nationally or internationally? On a, and uh, yeah, that's what, what I'm interested What's impacting in. our farmers here in the region? Um, what should we be paying attention to ar- around the country, if not around the around the globe? Mm-hmm. So I think that... Uh, I, I think well, it covers, what, it covers uh, quite a range of topics there, Michael. What should we be paying attention to in this first segment of... Uh, what are we? We are September... 13th. 13th. And uh, what's going on in Green Market? What's some of the big news? Well, uh Lots of exciting things are happening right now. It's this is the, a busy time of year, agriculturally, from both yeah. exactly from both what what's what's new at market to what we're involving our, ourselves in. Um, we like you know our markets stagger in their openings from we have nineteen markets that are open year round, but basically from April through July we're opening markets, and some people might not know what's in season, what's happening, but come September this is really the time where summer products meet winter and fall products and right. everything is at market so this is a very exciting time to yeah to be walking around lots one of, our of stones markets. fruits for instance still there's still corn right there's, there's still corn still, uh, i will say that I, I thought that after today i was going to go home and, and can some some peaches but we have a couple weeks left of mm-hmm. of oh, peaches so you don't have to can them yet not yet berries are going this is probably the last week for berries so <gasps> people should go out there and what kind of and berries prepare for that. all berries raspberries blueberries mm-hmm. um what about boysenberry? Danon had boys. I grew up on boysenberry, Danon yogurt. I have not seen a boysenberry. Or- I've never seen a boysenberry. I have never seen a boysenberry. I'm not sure. I wonder if boysenberries actually. Gina, what do you think? Are there really such a thing as boysenberries? Not here. Not in New York. I've never seen. What about girls and berries? 
<laughs> what about what? Girls and berries. <laughs> they haven't synthesized those yet. Those are those are still in the planning stages at the uh, Dow Chemical Factory. <laughs> so wow, this is the time to really get the last berries. People should go out and they, bury it up. Huh? Tomatoes, absolutely. Tomatoes. Couple more weeks. Go out and buy. Actually, what I here's a great great little tip for for the listener. Go up to a producer at the end of the day. Say what are you what are you throwing away? Take it home, sauce it, can it. Mm-hmm. That's that's what we'll be doing over the next couple of weeks. Yeah, um, and, and as we talked about, that's the, a great way to keep summer's bounty on it, your table all the way it, through the winter. Exactly, right? and you really it, invest some time. It's in easy that. to it's do. Worthwhile. It's fun to do. Have some friends over. Call yeah. call it a canning party. Yep, easy. Yeah, mm-hmm. preserving is becoming, uh, you know, is, is a reviving art in uh, in home cooking, I've noticed. I, I know a lot of people who are way into preserving these days, who are pickling, preserving, making jams and jellies, doing tomatoes. It's, it's I think, a really uh, long overdue development in right. the worship of food. One of my favorites <laughs> is um, the last of the basil, putting the pe- just making a bunch of pesto and sticking yeah. it in the freezer, because come January, that basil or that pesto tastes so good. It does. Mm. It's true. <laughs> right. And it's so much better than buying commercially prepared. So tell us, um, we know uh, Mr. Horowitz is the director of Green Market. Tell us, Liz, what you do. So I oversee anything happening at the market. Um, while we want people, the farmer's market, to be a place where people regularly go to shop for their food, we also recognize that it's an outdoor space in New York City, and we like it to be a destination where, you know, you go with your family and your dogs, and, you know, um, you pick up your food, but you also listen to music, and you participate in events and activities. We always have a knowledgeable staff person on hand. Um, we have cooking demonstrations at every market every single day. Um, highlighting what's in season, teaching about the food. Um, we always have free recipes available. And then regularly we have events and activities. Today they're having a firefighter chili cook-off in Carroll Gardens. All right. Is that um, with the Tabasco people? Um, or? No, no, just... The, no, the we local just, fire station. Oh the local God. fire yeah. station, right. Yesterday one of our, our pickle <laughs> producers, uh, Rick Fields from, from Rick's Picks, Rick's Picks. Sure. did a uh, pickling demonstration at, at Fort Greene. And He's those, been on. He's been on, and also, he, I've, I'm starting to see his products everywhere. They are. Oh, yeah. He had really a crowd a around the marketing tent. thing going. He, he's and, pretty great. You know, what's, what's great about Rick is he's buying from our, our producers, and it's just another way for them to, to generate income from Absolutely. products that otherwise yeah. they, they might be composting. Um, and he gets a product out of it and extends the season and provides more more products. Yeah, more options at market, for consumers. But also yeah. with that surrounding surrounding stores and yeah, right. So right. he hosted the stand yesterday, and we regularly do meet your farmer series. We have one coming up at Union Square with Stephanie Villani of Blue Moon Fish. They're out mm-hmm. in Long Island, and um, she's going to be showing. You know, she's going to show how to fillet a whole fish. She did it last year at our Grand Army Plaza market, and she brought this huge bluefish and a huge flounder, and just split them wide open, and we made fish tacos right there in the market. So oh, fantastic. it was pre- yeah, it was pretty fun, and sh- and she'll be doing that. And we have um, a web page for each market with a list of events going on, so you can just look at your neighborhood market and find out what's happening. If a sh- restaurant's coming in to do a demo or something like that. Now, tell us about mm-hmm. these green markets. I, um, most people know the Union Square one, and then the Grand Army Plaza one seems mm-hmm. to be the next one. Tell our listeners some of the unusual, like off the beaten path, green market venues that you particularly are. This fans is our of. favorite subject. <laughs> it, it it's one of my favorite things. Like I, yeah. I will uh, base my Saturday schedule around what my menu is going to be. I huh. go by. Um, <laughs> I used to, I was going to say, I go buy my duck at Abington, but we have a, a new duck producer at, at market, so now I can go, go to, to Fort Greene and mm-hmm. to uh, our Tribeca markets, our Tucker Square market by Lincoln Center. Oh, wow. I, you know, I've 
I, if hopefully none of our producers are going to hear this today, because <laughs> I'll tell you, I love our Inwood Market. Mm-hmm. Um, Inwood, that's uh, way uptown. That's way, uptown. Yeah. way uptown on Isham Street. Uh, is that on the four or five train? Yep, yeah. right off of it. The yep. our Jackson Heights Market, where you're just elbowing your way to the cucumbers at Sunday morning at nine a.m. You know, and, and you know Jackson Crowds. Heights is one of the most diverse neighborhoods mm-hmm. in the world. And I you love just, Jackson that's Heights. That's what you you yeah. see. That's interesting. When, when who goes to that market? I mean, do you get every, you know, everyone, everyone comes to that. Everyone and, and you name it. You every hear, nationality. You hear, sure. The market really reflects the neighborhood. 10 languages yep. easily. You go and see uh, 80 year old Chinese women doing Tai Chi at 7 a.m. In, yeah. in the park and uh, some cricket playing going on. Well, you have a Jackson Heights for people who don't live in the New York area um, and who may be listening. Jackson Heights is predominantly uh, Indian Pakistani. So they have extraordinary. I mean, I go out there quite regularly just for uh, just for the, you know, the sheer pleasure of seeing all of these amazing products, which really almost can only be found in Jackson Heights. Um, There's Patel Brothers as the one that most people know, but there are several other markets, including and they have fantastic and amazing produce things that we don't see in the green markets and sure. i don't know who they are buying this produce from <laughs> but it would that would be an interesting little segment right there and then because it's like those weird bumpy cucumbers that are so Definitely. scary looking <laughs> <laughs> okay. hi this nice. is moby and you're listening to the heritage radio network oh hi, i love Jeff and the moby one <laughs> <laughs> so um anyway well very interesting well this all begs this one question i mean Today, I know the New Amsterdam market is happening. Yeah, I wanted to mention that also. And um, I want to know um, why no prepared foods or, you know, why can a family not eat a meal at the green market? Um, You know, what's the uh, what's the rules? What's the rationale behind that? Uh, Several rationales. But, you know, I earlier in your segment, um, you were talking about trends and what's popular and how important it is to stay true to form. And I think that what's allowed us to be successful for 33 years is that we have stayed true to the mission about supporting local agriculture, keeping farmland in, in production. And that's at the core of what we do. Um, we're in public space, and there are those, there are supermarket operators, there are other small stores that say often, why are you essentially subsidized? Um, we mm. believe it's because we're providing a public service as much as anything. As Liz said, farmers markets are a place to, to buy product, but it's also an education center. Um, it's a place where we're educating folks about the relationship between nutrition and health. And uh, as much as I love going to the Ithaca farmers market and being able to buy freshly squeezed orange juice and a Cuban sandwich, um, and I love other markets around the country where, there, where there's prepared foods, it does create a, there is a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, at some of our markets, actually some, some local folk, like at Poe Park in the Bronx, you talk about one of my favorite markets in the system. Mm-hmm. Poe Park on the Bronx, in the Bronx, it, it's a slamming market. It's packed, elbow to elbow. And there's also uh, a group of women from the neighborhood who set up on the sidewalk across from us and sell tamales and arepas and tortas. And I think it's great. And I buy them every time, every time I'm there. It's not what, what we're about. Um, a lot of the prepared foods at farmer's markets, the food isn't even actually purchased from, from local farmers. Um, I like staying true to form. I think it's what's going to keep us successful. It's what's going to keep the focus on supporting local farmers. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, 
we provide it. It's an important service that we provide. The agricultural products that, that you're able to, to purchase at a farmer's market, uh, you know, there's a reason why we exist, and that's because 33 years ago that they didn't, they weren't available in, in New York City. So mm-hmm. I think the more we stay true to form, the longer we'll last. And I love what Robert's doing with the New Amsterdam market and Brooklyn Flea and a lot of the, you know, I love the People's Popsicle. I wish, you know, many, we, we debate about it all the time. Um, but they are supporting green market farmers, and I think that there there is a venue for them, and it, it doesn't necessarily have to be at a farmer's market. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, we talked earlier about people keeping people in the market for five hours, and that some of the having some prepared foods allows you to do that. You actually, we actually have a lot of customers that do that now, or actually go home, right. come to market, buy eggs and bacon and bread in the morning, go home, cook it up, come back right. in the afternoon and do their shopping for the week. Yeah, absolutely. So, and there's still things you can eat. I mean, there's cakes and there's apple, right? Cheese, I mean, there's fruit, sure. cheese. bread. Yeah, cheese and bread and some herbs. And, you know, there are, we, do have, we do have some prepared foods. Uh, when you, uh, the other thing is when you do prepared food is it brings in the Department of Health. Right, that's a whole uh, ball of wax. A whole other ball of wax. If you see what happened in the Red Hook ball fields, it used to be a, a, a thriving market down there. It, they lost 40% of their vendors when their vendors had to go into mobile trucks so that they right. could have running water and refrigeration. Refrigeration. Yeah. Uh, I don't know anybody that ever got sick by one of the raraches that were being sold down at the Red Hook <laughs> ball fields. Mm. And uh, you know, <laughs> I used to. We used to have a farmers market when I was at Added Value. We used to have a farmers market around the corner, and that's what we would eat every day for, for lunch for a long time, and never got sick. Mm. But it's funny. Anne told me a funny story. Anne Saxelby told me a funny. Her neighbor at the Essex Street Market is Kenny Shopson who has always been under the market type of rules. But now they're like, basically, you're a restaurant. This is real <laughs> food. So now he's being held accountable to the whole Gosh. a whole different uh, group of inspectors. And he is very upset. Yeah, he's imagine. doing everything he well, can. Well, the infrastructure to... that you have to um, finance in order to pass those uh, Department of Health inspections is is not insubstantial. I mean, it's right. it's big big money uh, to get. Machi. Yeah, to get those. <laughs> Any you chance know, that, the refrigeration, uh, your energy one. costs must go sky high. I mean, mm-hmm. I can't imagine how uh, dismaying that would be to have to. And I'm sure that's what happened with the people in the Red Hook ball fields. Like nobody could sustain the money. Yeah. Well, what are the? You're not uh, getting rich making a repas. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What are the biggest uh, challenges? You know, the things like uh, looming over, uh, you know, of running the green market. I mean, such a massive 180 farmers. Is that right? Actually, we're at about 200 producers. 200 producers. uh, And about 85% of those are farmers. So what is the greatest challenge? I posed that question to both of you. Um, You know, what is the biggest challenge of your job? Well, you know, I mean, it, it really depends on, on the day. Farming's tough. This has been a tough year for farmers. Yes. Very uh, wet. Very wet. Terrible growing season, yeah. Terrible growing. So it, it's been sort of the, the perfect storm f- for farmers. Um, so between land pressure, real estate, price of real estate and of farmland, mm-hmm. um, to aging out of farmers, to the realities of agriculture. So this year, people who went to some markets that opened in June, they didn't go back because there wasn't much, they weren't, there wasn't much product in in June. The way that customers had had been used to, so it's it's in many ways keeping people coming back, mm-hmm. um, helping farmers stay viable, um, reminding the city why it's important to support farmers markets. Is that ever a question? Do they forget sometimes? 
Uh, you know, we have a great, we have a wonderful relationship with uh, our city government from funding for the EBT market to 95% of our markets are on public property. And Who's your liaison? Who, what, what department head of the government is in charge of, uh, you know, working with it, you guys? Well, we work with the Department of Transportation. Mm-hmm. We work with the police department. We work with the Department of Sanitation. We work with the Parks Department. We work mm-hmm. with the Community Affairs Unit. So... Which you, one do we you, not work with is really, yeah, right? It, it, it really is. It, I mean, we have someone on staff whose job it is really to help maintain those relationships um, from the commissioner to the person on the ground who never spoke to the commissioner and is like, what the hell are you guys doing here set up on the sidewalk? Hmm. Or to we show up one day and there's a construction, construction crew that just tore up the cement and what are we supposed to do? Right. Is that dumb, by the way? The Union Square tear-ups? I mean, it was so yeah. weird for I, I was decades, that, that seems Oh, it's still a wreck on. down how there. How embarrassing. <laughs> I mean, how embarrassing for the city. I remember once Donald Trump had to, like, buy Woolman Rink, that ice skating rink. Right. And after, like, 22 years, like, six months later, that rink was perfect. I mean, is it because they, like, the city denies, like, the mob and the people that really get stuff done, and so it ends up being done on a much more grassroots level that never works? Or is it... I don't know. I mean, anyway, tell yeah, us the Union Square situation. I'll tell situation. you about U- Union Square construction. Uh, because I, I think, act- act- actually, the opposite is true that i'm surprised how quickly it's going okay it's not done uh and it it has impacted the market significantly uh the our north i don't know if any of you, if you guys have been there in, in the north end shopping i i know that it's it's tight um the fence line has our aisle space has been squeezed very much very yeah. much We've gone from 24 feet to 10 feet of aisle space. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's very uh, much tighter. And we'll get some of that back, but we've lost. I mean, we've lost customers because of it. And I, I can't blame the customer, but I hope that they will continue to be ready for when construction's over. Yeah. The truth is, you put a dog and a stroller in there, and it's a nightmare. Yeah. What are uh, they uh, constructing there? It's just they're now working, still working on the playground and the park house itself. Right. Fantastic. Uh, do we have a caller on the line? Uh, all right. No, we don't. Um, well, we only have uh, another couple of minutes. Liz, tell us about your um, toughest job, your challenge. And in- um, I would say, well, so we're running 49 markets in all five boroughs. We have one in Staten Island. We're opening another one this month um, mm-hmm. at the Staten Island Mall. And I would just, you know, 40, 49 markets, you have community groups, um, schools in around each market that are heavily involved. We hire seasonal staff. It's just the scope. Mm-hmm. There is so there's so many people involved. Um, we train our seasonal staff for three weeks of intensive training in the beginning of spring. Um, and then they're really our eyes and ears on the ground. They're our mm-hmm. on-site contacts. And so they have to know everything from, you know, someone saying, why isn't everything here organic to, I mean, they have to be there at 530 in the morning, setting up the farmers and once they're set up and um, everybody's safe that's the you know biggest priority then they have to run promotions they have to flyer and do cooking demos and handle community groups coming in and huh. musicians and everything so it's keeping them you know excited around mid-august they kind of look like zombies and then the weather breaks and everybody's <laughs> back in action and they're excited about fall and but they're lugging everything to market they, yeah they carry all their supplies beat up vans basically right. that service 49 markets wow right so it's really, it's really just you know um, trying to make each market great and uh, this viable public space and um, keeping the person there excited about it. But our market managers uh, this year are phenomenal. I mean, so 
it's it's been a despite the farmers having a pretty tough season i'd say that they're really resilient you know you talk to them and um even if they've lost a lot of product due to late blight or the the rain i mean they are like you know we have next season i heard one farmer recently say someone asked them he was speaking on a panel and someone asked him what uh what do you think your biggest challenge is? And he said, just when you think you know everything, it rains for the entire month of June, mm-hmm, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, uh, you know, they pick up and they keep going. They plant for next year and they're fine. And our customers are so loyal. So Everyone read fine. the Farmer's Almanac. Yeah. That will That's help right. you know right. what's happening. Someone once, my friend wrote the Farmer's Almanac once year and he, <laughs> uh, every year and he once got an email, do I need to rent a tent for my daughter's wedding <laughs> in 11 months? And he was like, oh my God. <laughs> But well, um, thank we, you so much yeah. for, for coming on. Um, we're about to be joined by Jeff Lone, who just opened Flushing Farm. Um, we're going to take a brief break, but uh, um, we will come back. And this is part of a monthly segment. So thank, thank, you, thank you both. Thank, thank you, you Michael. Thank, thank you, Gina. You, it's been great having you. It is a Sunday. Uh, we are brought to you by Sam Edwards, Wallace and Sons. Well, Sam Edwards, really. S. Wallace and Sons, one of the best ham curers in the nation. Absolutely. Just 400 miles away in Virginia. And this is the Heritage Radio Network. You're with Patrick Martins and Katie Kiefer on the main course. We are broadcasting out of Roberta's, which is in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Beautiful Bushwick, Brooklyn. And just uh, three blocks away, straight up Bogart is um, Flushing Farm, which I have been walking by. Farms. Farms. Flushing Farms. I've been walking by Flushing Farms for years. It's a very interesting space that's been recently converted, and uh, it just opened as a restaurant-slash-coffee spot, and we have its owner and founder, Jeff Lone, on. Welcome, Jeff. 
Thank you. Thanks for coming in, Jeff. No problem. Tell us about Flushing Farms. Uh, how can I start? Um, three and a half years ago, I answered a New York Times ad for a little teeny fixer upper building on Flushing Avenue. <coughs> That That's was, an understatement. No, it's not Flushing Farms. No, oh, oh I it, this was not Flushing Farms. This little building was a two-story in very bad condition, very cheap. <clears throat> and I went to look at it. There was another fifteen people there to look at it. Long story short, I didn't get it, mm-hmm. but I noticed the building next door. And what I noticed was that <clears throat> it was a garage-type building with a little white kind of a little um, white ceramic brick building attached to the garage building and a big hunk of triangular vacant land <clears throat> that was in the middle of the street kind of it abutted two streets and I know was filled with tar and asphalt but what I noticed was unusual about it was that it got sunshine all day long hmm. I mean literally f- from seven in the morning till eight at night because there's summer. no tall buildings around yeah, it right right and the, it's the way it's situated in yeah this it's very triangle. unusual very cool spot to, and to, it had a little one-story hut almost, right, there, a building. There was a building on it, right? Oh, there were two buildings on it. There was a garage-type building that had um, 50s French roll-up doors. Hmm. Uh, and there was a one-story attached to that garage with its own entrance, and there was all a broken car park, carport attached to the one-story. And the place was a wreck and, uh, <clears throat> you know, covered with broken asphalt and mud and tar and everything but mm-hmm. after seeing it twice i realized that the, the sun thing was happening so anyway i bought it mm-hmm. instead of the thing that who did you buy from the city or was no, that a, from the owner that was, who was owner. A, yeah who had no interest in in doing anything other than selling it he was a speculator and he uh was the place was leaking water and he wanted to get rid of it so along came me so you were brave yeah, I I bought it only because of the land, the, this land that had sun, and I envisioned having uh, fruit trees there, mm-hmm. and I thought conceived as the whole the whole thing as a kind of art farm, whatever that means, mm-hmm. and we've been it's like a big play toy, and I've been piddling around with it for three years. Tell <laughs> us about this whole redevelopment process. I mean, you took something out of nothing and you built. A, what is it now? Tell our listeners. It's a coffee. Now it just opened. <clears throat> Well, it, it originally it was, as I say, it was conceived as a kind of art, a big green eco art project, where, you know, the at the first thing I did was go in there with a, a bobcat and tear up all the all the asphalt and everything and and uh, grade it, build a barrier cement wall, and brought in tons of of soil and compost from trucked in from a very good garden center, Keel Brothers in Long Island and some grass, and built a deck, and built planters, and so on. And it took weeks and weeks to decide on how to do this. You know, how much grass, you know, how much not grass, where the planters go, what shape the deck should be, and so on. And sort of lucked out with that. It turned out well, because I'm definitely not a good architect. Mm -hmm. So this was a lucky break. It turned out really well. And... uh, What's on the menu? Well, now it's open as a work in progress, and there's. Um, but be back up one step. Mm-hmm. Originally, I was working with a curator from a gallery director in Manhattan for the art side of it. Even though I'm in the arts, I, 
music and photography. I not so much into networking with the art world. Well, Stacy Allen was perfect for that. She loved the Flushing Farms. This was before it was what it is now. It was still raw, mm-hmm. and we she we were going to do art quote unquote art think kinds of things there and we did one big piece with her but unfortunately she got hired a better job in LA so she's not around and so that left a big hole because I'm like overwhelmed I just can't too much on my shoulders mm-hmm. so um, the art dimension of it um, has uh, backed up a little bit but so, that will come back as you get your yeah. sea legs going with the Hopefully, cafe yeah. and everything I mean that, that takes a it's a learning curve to running any yeah. kind of business like that, especially if that's not the business you come from. So yes, you're correct. you know you're, in another year or so, you'll have well, all of that stuff sorted out, and you'll bring in your gallery curator again. You know, somebody else. There's plenty of curators out there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, every kid wants to curate a show now, and I mean, there's so many galleries out here in Bushwick, and there are so many in Williamsburg. It's just remarkable. People just like to be called curators. Well, yes. they what they do is these kids get to. I mean, I shouldn't call them kids, but these young artists, punks. They yeah. <laughs> These these upstarts, um, no, but they they curate shows of all their friends. Like they they sort yes. of go around to different gallery spaces, and then somebody's invited to be a guest curator, and and he'll bring a group of his friends that are thematically linked on some very specious uh, reason. And some of the art is great, and some of it's terrible, but it's all really fun and vital and exciting mm-hmm. to see in one place. And that's what's making I think Brooklyn such a fantastic borough to live in now, as opposed to Manhattan, which is so moribund and so depressing yeah. and so you know as far as like the art world goes it over unless you're <laughs> unless you're very wealthy and even then <laughs> well now <laughs> it's over tell us about the menu we have another couple minutes and then i know you have to get going because it's not easy to leave a place that's uh, just opened. well it's a work in progress i'll tell you when you you mentioned the word business i'll tell you this place is being run like um a 12 year old kid's lemonade stand <laughs> okay i uh, didn't that's a Do certain this. form of business. Does that mean I yes. can eat there for a quarter? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Probably. You can, we'll give you some organic raspberries. Well, right now, there, we're, we have... Um, are you doing the cooking or the I've got sourcing? some young kids from the area. They're helping out over there. They're fabulous. Just great. And uh, I'm what there, too. What are their too. names? Cherie and Jordan and Maggie. They're wonderful. Cherie, Jordan, and Maggie. Yeah, Shout out there. to you. And um, there's... A homemade gramusli from the mornings, which has mm. organic uh, Swiss muesli with flax, hemp, granola, pumpkin seeds, sesame seeds, wheat germ, wheat bran. God, I gotta with, go to the bathroom right now. Way too healthy for me, man. <laughs> with oh, it's delicious with yogurt or with yogurt and fruit. You guys making with, your own yogurt yet? <clears throat> no, but it's got a, a an organic raspberry strawberry drizzle mm. made from our a medley of r- organic raspberries, strawberries, and blueberries from the garden. Mm. So your garden is supplying some of your... Yes. Oh, yeah. kind of like what we do here at Roberta's. We, yes. They yes. do up at Roberta's. Yes. Yeah. The, but there's just an, an incredible amount because of the sun there. And I, I, I was yeah. really focusing on the garden. It's got strawberries, blueberries, raspberries, mm-hmm. uh, onions, carrots, peaches, apricots, zucchini, squash, peppers, broccoli, Brussels sprouts. Wow. Uh, and this is corn. all in the middle of where people are sitting, yes. too, right? And what, yeah. So you have chairs actually in the garden well, on we, the triangle. Yeah, there's, there's a, a, a great 50s kind of rocker in the garden um, we lucked out in getting. And then there's some forest compost area with, with mm-hmm. a, a table. And then there's the deck for seating. There's the grass and also the barrier wall. You can sit on that. 
And also, Fantastic. the other food is we've got all the cappuccinos and chai lattes and that stuff and some bagels and the, the real focus. Where do you get your bagels from? Uh, just picking them up. We don't have a, a, a real purveyor yet. Okay. So we've got to do that. But the juices are extraordinary. They're, they're these fresh-pressed tropical juices with nothing added, which we include um, this medley, blended medley of organic raspberry and strawberry blueberry with the each juice is a one of a kind because mm. we make them diff, each one a little bit different a little less pineapple a little more a little peach maybe a little pear all fresh um blended well, i feel healthier just by having had jeff here just so having you in the room makes how me do people what is easier. the address for but people to we come? do have in the evening unhealthy stuff we have burgers oh, nice. good sirloin burgers with organic tomatoes from the garden steaks sometimes and great veggie burgers in oh. the evening Excellent. Well, that's um, Flushing Farms. You take the L train to Morgan Avenue and uh, just walk past Roberta's up another couple of yeah, blocks. Just up Bogart to Flushing, look left, and there we are. Excellent. Congratulations well, on realizing a dream. Do you have Thanks. a website yet? Really cool. Yeah, flushingfarms.org, and it's, uh, oh, it's, it's, a, it's a mess. <laughs> it's a website. mess. That's okay. It's, it's a 12-year-old's lemonade stand. Exactly. Come on, what else is enough. it be? I know. Eat all you can eat for a nickel. No, yeah. just kidding. But, um, Katie, this has been a very good show. Very good show. Thanks, Patrick. Thanks, you, Katie. This is your, your dream here. And we'll be back for the Q Report. Thanks.